morning, Gloria, America, bonjour, hi, Canada. That music means it is the last radio hour of a very eventful week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Once a week in the Hillsdale Dialogues, I meet either virtually with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues to talk about something important, something lasting. And this week, it happens to be about something that happened yesterday. And that's not usually the case. But Dr. Arn, good morning to you. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. You know, I occasionally throw you a curveball. Mm-hmm. Now, you may not know this, but the Presidential Debate Commission announced unilaterally the cancellation of a debate, saying that it would instead be virtual rather than live and not consulting Donald Trump before they did. So, of course, he then went on CNBC and said he's not going to go to that to Maria Bartiromo. And I spent the morning in vain with Senator Kevin Kramer and Senator Tom Cotton against unelected, nameless, faceless bureaucrats of the Beltway, dinosaurs who roam the Beltway and act as mandarins in at the old imperial Chinese court. You are not unfamiliar with these creatures. What is your re- reaction to the idea of an unelected group of nameless, faceless people canceling a debate without talking to the head of state and head of government about doing so? Yeah, well, um, you can see the problem in the way that journalists conduct themselves when they moderate, so-called moderate these debates. Um, uh, Mike Wallace uh, raises Chris raises Wallace, voice Chris said, Wallace, uh, Chris, yeah, Chris Wallace, yeah, the other one. Yeah, the other. Um, he, he uh, raises his voice and says, "If I can keep uh, within the time limit, why cannot you?" And that raises the question: Who are you, right? Well, who appointed you to be there? And, you know, the, the media has this idea that they run things now. Now, because you threw me a curveball, I can't remember how the debate commission got started or who, whether it's legislative or not. It is not legislative. It was agreed to by parties, I believe, in 88. I can't remember when. And it's always been sort of a halfway house where the parties met, negotiated and agreed. And the format yeah. has developed over the years uh, like you know, the class of boats they use in the America's Cup. But it changes over time a little bit here, a little bit there. We still have the the dreadful town hall debate that dates back to Bush and Clinton. Uh, We have the same formats, et cetera. They pick the moderator, but it's always negotiated between the parties. They have no independent statting, and they have no legislative writ. I see. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, that's right. And that's why Chris Wallace keeps exclaiming that – you know, you you agreed to the terms. Well, Trump didn't agree to these terms, and uh, uh, and probably Biden did. I don't know. Uh, Biden thinks he's ahead, uh, and so he's got reasons not to do anything dramatic. And uh, let, let me make another point. Did you hear? I mean, I, I thought Susan, whatever her name is, forgetting me now, who moderated the vice presidential debate, Susan Page. Uh, she did a. I thought she did a really great job till the last question. The last the question last was question, silly. Yeah, it was openly partisan, right? I mean, Trump has said that uh, he, you know, if he put together the things he said, he has said several times that of course he will accept the results of a fair election. He always says that. But uh, what if it's not fair? And he's concerned about that, and I'm concerned about that. And so the point is. Uh, it might be prudent for him to say, of course, I will, you know, submit to whatever the people say. Well, do they actually say it? 
And, you know, Trump is not a guy to <laughs> say anything other than exactly what he thinks. So I just thought that was a setup. And, and uh, you know, it, it colored the last 10 minutes of the debate, uh, which, you know, I thought went pretty well. But, I, you know, here's another point. I made this point once before last week, I think. Uh, the media, right? That means they mediate. That means they're in between, right? Everything is mediated now. And the direct action of a citizen in voting, right? That's the, that is the ruling act. That is under the Constitution of the United States, the thing that we have empowered ourselves by making the Constitution to do. Well, now votes can be mediated, right? Somebody can go register for you. Somebody can go get your ballot. Somebody can take it to you, one hopes. You can mark it, and then somebody can take it in. Well, that's just, uh, first of all, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, there's somebody between you and the act of the voting. And the same thing is the way the media, you know, the way they mediate everything. I didn't, I was angry with Chris Wallace after the Trump's acceptance speech because he, he comes on, you know, because first of all, you, you watch for 30 minutes and uh, 40, you know, if you do, I can't, I can hardly bear to do it. You can watch for two hours if you want to before every big political event. And they speculate about it, and they interpret it, and they put a twist upon it, and they set up perceptions. And then when it's over, then they do the same thing again in a rehash, except he didn't even rehash, really. It's his impressions, right? I thought it fell flat. That's what he said. Well, who are you? What do you care? What do we care what you think? So he's not a reporter anymore. And that, you know, that just, it's kind of a liberate. It's, it's, it fits with the general theme these days, which is the people can't actually be trusted to exercise their constitutional duties. And, you know, well, what were the Lincoln-Douglas debates like? You know, it, uh, but they just walked up there and started talking. And uh, there was, a, there was a, somebody to introduce each of them, uh, but we don't remember who that person was because those guys stood up there and debated for three hours. And people gathered and sat in the sun for three hours and listened to them, and and you know, and huge throngs, unprecedented throngs. And it's shocking in. that they did not need that era's Hugh Hewitt to conduct the debate. <laughs> That's right. It's shocking. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It, I want to read something to you from yesterday's printout. So I don't know if they've changed it overnight, Doctor Arn. This is from the debates.org page. The Commission on Presidential Debates was established in 1987 to ensure for the benefit of the American electorate that general election debates between or among the leading candidates for the office of president and vice president of the United States are a permanent part of the electoral process. The debate commission, CPD's primary purpose is to sponsor and produce the quadrennial general election debates and to undertake research and educational activities relating to the debates. The organization, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan 501c3 corporation, sponsored all of the presidential debates in 1988, 1992, 6, 2004, 08, 2012, 2016. To meet its ongoing goal of educating voters, the CPD is engaged in various activities beyond producing and sponsoring the presidential debates. Its staff prepares educational materials and conducts research to improve the quality of debates. Further, the CPD provides technical assistance to emerging democracies and other interested in establishing debate traditions in their countries. What do you make of that, Larry Arn? 
Well, you know, what's their business improving the quality of debates, and how are they to judge that? Because we, you know, we do that. We're supposed to watch, and we're supposed to read, and we're supposed to hear, and then we make up our minds, each of us and in our groups and with our friends and people we know, and then we go vote, right? So who are they to make a judgment about that? I am uh, I, so shocked a day later that they did not consult the head of state, head of government, and head of party when they originally were supposed to be basically the house in which the peace negotiations took place. But of course, they have done what D.C. things do. They have grown. They have grasped power. They have become permanent. And they have added staff, Larry Arn. And we know what that means. They will, oh, yeah. they will continue to do so. It's, uh, uh, I, I pride myself that I've never had full-time employment in Washington, D.C. And uh, I, I, have a, I have a campus there, but I don't live there. <laughs> and uh, and it's, that, that's the thing. It, it, uh, it, is an, it, is an, it has the tone and attitude of an imperial city now. And interestingly mm-hmm. enough, it eschews empire. So the empire is the rest of the country. And uh, that's just- I, I'll tell you, Dr. Arm, what I suggested to our friend Senator Cotton yesterday. If I were the president, not king, not queen, not duke, not earl, I would declare I was going to be on X stage and I was naming Y moderator. And I would put a podium in another chair there and say to Joe Biden, that's your podium. Bring any moderator you want. Bring Dr. Biden if you want his wife. Mm-hmm. And I'll see you on such and such a date and screw the Presidential Debate Commission. Do you think that would work? Yeah. See, just think it's it's not hard to think of a much better format than this. Uh, the format could be, and should be, each of them talk for 15 minutes. And then have a series of two, three minutes, say, two or three minute exchanges. At the end of the time, the microphone goes dead. And, I, I agree. You know, I agree. And when we come back from break, I'm actually going to talk about what I promised you we would talk about. The plague in Athens and the plague in America when we return to The Hugh Hewitt Show. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway, America. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. I am Hugh Hewitt. My guest today, as he is most weeks, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, which is having a booming year because they're actually doing college up in Michigan, and they're doing it well, and they're doing it safely, and they're doing it with an extraordinary group of smart people as Hillsdale becomes basically the lantern of reason in America. I used to say the lantern of reason in the North, but it's now becoming the lantern of reason in America. Dr. Arn, I want to go back to the debate held between Vice President Pence and Senator Harris on Friday. It began by talking about the virus, and I was thinking at that moment about the plague that swept Athens, another democracy 2,500 years ago, and it killed about 100,000 people, and it had devastating effects on the city. Does it ever occur to you that we're living in kind of the minor league version of that plague? I do not mean to dismiss in any way the suffering of the 200,000 people who have died, their families' grief. But Athens was a small city, and 100,000 people died. America is a large country, and 210,000 people have died. Are, are, we, are, are we handling this the right way in, in our conversation? Uh, well, there's a great thing, and I might actually even get to introduce you to it and, and our, our listeners. Uh, there's something called the Great Barrington, Barrington Declaration from two days ago, and it was put together by uh, three eminent scientists, Martin Kohldorf, uh, Sunetra Gupta. Martin Kohldorf is from uh, Harvard. Sunetra Gupta is from Oxford. 
And Jay Bhattacharya, who's the one I know, who's from Stanford. And what they say is that we're doing everything wrong here. He says that, oh, wow. first of all, oh, it's, it's and you know, I've, let me, I, I'll look at the numbers. You can go sign it, gbdeclaration.org. And, uh, T is in Thomas, B is in Barrington, declaration.org? Yeah, G for golf, B for... Oh, GB, uh, GB declaration, all right. Great Barrington. And there are 4,351 medical and public health scientists who've signed it now. And there's 7,954 medical practitioners, and there's 112,000 of the rest of us who've signed it. And what it says is, uh, you know, we know, first of all, the, the, we don't really know what happened in Athens. We don't know what the plague was or anything. We know quite a lot about the bubonic plague, and it's still here among us today. And we have means to treat it, and that's why it doesn't make big news. But, um, but this one, uh, the first thing that happened was, this is a coronavirus. There are seven of them, I've heard Jay Bhattacharya say. And they're all still extant. They go back 30 years or something. And so this virus is going to be around for a long time. Now, there's no vaccine for any coronavirus yet. Maybe there will be soon, and that'll be a miracle and a great achievement if that is produced. Uh, but in the meantime, we've shut down the economy, which has terrible effects all over the place. You know, suicides are up in the tens of thousands, so, some number, right? And that, you know, COVID-19 is a terrible way to die, but suicide is worse, right? Because it's death accompanied by despair. And so we ruin people's businesses and we keep kids at home, which is the thing I protest about most strongly. And here's what they say. We now know that the vast majority of the population, if they get this, will get it mildly. And, and you know, it doesn't, what does mildly mean? Uh, we've had 11 students go through the whole deal now. And the sickest of them was sick for four days. And the less sick of them can sort of try to isolate a day when they felt bad. Uh, and, you know, we lock them up and put them in the pokey and, you know, make them not spread and all that stuff. But I'm not even sure that's the right thing to do because if a lot of people get it, they get immunity to it. And then it's hard for the virus to spread because it doesn't encounter many people who are vulnerable to it. And that's called herd immunity. And these guys make a stand for that. And they've called for something called focus protection. They thought up a name. You should go watch. There's a, there's a video. There's, there's a short video and a longer video. And they're both riveting. And these three people, and see, these people are, you know, I don't know about their politics. I imagine they're liberals, you know, probably. But, gosh, they're articulate. And they just say, we're just doing the wrong thing here. I will I will agree with you that we need to go to gbdeclaration.org right away. And then you need to come back for part three of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. I am Hugh Hewitt, inside the Beltway, but not of it. Joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including an application to go to this great university. Uh, is found at hilldale.edu. I'm curious, Dr. Arn, given that you're doing college and doing it well, if your application rate uh, year over year is skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew I, it. Uh, lot, I knew it. Lot, 
lots of uh, transfer requests too. <laughs> people people want out. <laughs> you know, it's uh, now I know you. Don't you be throwing the Ohio kids out. I know you. Yeah. You'll just throw the yeah. Buckeyes out and bring in people from California. I know you. Well, uh, Ohio has a privileged place in our in our estimation. We're trying to help it. <laughs> All right. I want to go back to Athens before you puncture the Buckeye State's pride anymore. Uh, so we don't know much about the plague. What did it do to democracy? And what are we doing to our democracy by our reaction to the virus? Well, you know, we have a right to assemble and we have a, and and. We, we think of these, you know, in the Bill of Rights, the First Amendment, right? It's we are the talking beings. In fact, politics arises among us because we have this gift of speech. And that involves more that. I won't go through that, but there's a beautiful argument in Aristotle about where that comes from. And so what the founders tried to protect was free and open and constant discourse, uh, commercial friendly, familial, and in a very important way, political. Uh, The political system is set up to inspire a great national conversation. And, you know, it's it's different. Now we have the virtual world, and that's a new world, and it brings some benefits. But it also cuts out some very important things, like seeing the physical presence of a person when you speak with them. And that's one of the ways that you – you know, for example, it's easy if you're, you know, filling out a, a chat, a, a response form on social media to say simply vile things. It's harder if the person is standing right in front of you. Most people won't do that. So the civility that comes from ability to assemble and get together and associate with whom we please, see, those are those things are impeded right now. And and uh, that's just a shame, you know, and, the, and see, I want to just mention one more thing. The way the virus is going to be stopped is by herd immunity. Now, if we get a vaccine, that's just a way to artificially and rapidly build herd immunity, right? Because you're just building up people who've got the antibodies to it. And so if you lock everybody down and treat everybody the same, you're making the vulnerable bear the same burden of building herd immunity as the not vulnerable. And that's a penalty, see. Most of the people who've died from this are aged. And most of the people, 85%, I read, have died because they have comorbidities to the disease, which are serious afflictions. And so, so why, should that, why shouldn't we build up a world in which this virus can't move around very well, in which they'll be safer, and while we're doing that, protect them. And there should, that's what they mean by focused protection. Why, why shouldn't we find, you know, innovative, spend all this money, right? We're just spending a fortune on this, what, third of the gross domestic product. Spend the money finding a way so that older people with the comorbidities can live safely and with as much freedom as possible. And also, I'll add, as much freedom as they choose. Because, you know, I've had, uh, uh, we, we have some college events right now. We have as many as we can get away with. And I've had a 95-year-old man, a great man, former ambassador to the Vatican, trustee emeritus of the college, and his grandson graduated. And we encouraged anybody over 60 not to come to commencement. 
And, you know, he just called me up with pain in his voice. And I said, you're not going to kill anybody else, Frank. If you want to come, you can sit in the press box by yourself at the, at the commencement. It was on the football field. And you won't have to be around anybody else. That well, is wonderful. He got, his, he got to see his grandson graduate, right? And that's a choice for him to make. Did he announce? Did he, did he narrate the events? I mean, the microphone was probably there. He could have taken over. <laughs> you know, I don't know. His name is Frank Shakespeare. and he was. I know who you're talking Ambassador Shakespeare and, is a and, great and man. He's, uh, he's a great he, man. I don't think he'd mind me saying his name. But he would have been really good at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And now, making his way to the stage, what young Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> and see, just think of that. You know, he's, uh, you know, that guy is, uh, you know, we, we got a gift the other day from a man who's 105. And I saw Frank at commencement at 95. Those guys are going to live to 130. There yeah, they are. <laughs> we can only pray. We can only pray. <laughs> now, now, I want to go back, though. I, I think this has taken a toll on how we view the world, that we must uh, eradicate risk. Ron DeSantis, uh, I, I was misinformed, uh, had earlier said that the, the Dolphins would uh, allow all 65,000 ticket holders. What he actually said is it's up to the Dolphins to decide what to do. That's a fine governor's decision. Uh, it would yeah. be wrong to mandate that they must let 65,000 people in. I, and Rick Scott came on, the senator from Florida, and said what governor and the, the government should be doing is just providing the information and let people make smart decisions. That's what a free you people know, would do. You know, we, we had a national leadership seminar, our biggest kind of event, scheduled for Seattle, but we were in exile in diaspora, so we had it in South Dakota. And it was wonderful. And the governor came, and her first words were, Welcome to the land of the free. <laughs> I, I thought she might say to the free state of South Dakota, you know, something like yeah, that, and yeah. declare independence. Yeah. yeah, she might have. But, you know, what she said is what DeSantis has said all along. We should give people accurate information, and then we should let them make their decisions and trust them to do that. And, you know, if, it, if, if this turned into the bubonic plague, Actually, that would probably be a blessing because we could just treat that with antibiotics and it goes away. And apparently we get five or six cases of it a year. But uh, if it turned into something as lethal as the bubonic plague was back then, then, of course, extraordinary measures would have to be made. But those were terrible in the bubonic plague because, you know, a third of the population of, of England died. 33 percent. Yes. And and, you know, that's just that's just. That's, that's, that's world-changing, right? Civilization-changing. And what were the terrible things that incurred, right? People stopped, you know, and widespread, people stopped tending the sick, and they didn't bury the dead, and they fled. Uh, people were not given the last rights because priests were, made, were confronted with the horrible decision, I give it to this guy and I won't give it to anybody else ever. And so that's, you know, in other words, that's a really awful thing. And extreme things need to be done. Whereas if you look at the scale of this pandemic, uh, first of all, it's not unprecedented. Uh, it's not as bad as the 1918 pa pa pandemic where something like a million Americans died. Uh, it's, it's on the scale of the 57, 58, and the 68 pandemics. In 68, norm for population 
150,000 people died of it. But, you know, it wasn't on the front page of the paper every day. And and now we've got 200,000. That's 25 percent more. And that's bad. Right. That's very bad. But how many have we killed by these by this attempt to stop it? Which attempt is blunt and clumsy? Whereas you didn't have that in 57 or 8 and even 1918 or or 57 or 68. Now, some of the good news is that your governor in Michigan was checked last week. A court said to her, this far and no farther. And I've been waiting for this to happen. It has been, uh, unfortunately, slow in coming in some places. But I thought that was a good sign for the country. Yeah, that was written by the great Stephen Markman, who has got a very distinguished career in the law. He's the Supreme Court Chief Justice in Michigan. You know, he should have been a candidate for the for federal appellate court if he wanted to be, uh, or the Supreme Court. He's very skilled, really great. He works in the Justice Department. Maybe when you did, I don't know, from East. Yes. Um, and, I know and, Steve. Uh, yeah. I didn't know he was the justice you, of your court until this week. And he wrote a he wrote a beautiful opinion and i've read the opinion it's really great and what he basically says is there are two emergency laws in michigan the more modern one requires a grant of emergency authority which is very wide to the governor and it has to be reauthorized every 30 days the 1945 one much older it says she decides how long and what and she doesn't have to talk to the governor now that 45 law was a foolish law because what Markman's argument is, it delegated her the power to legislate, right? Because she did. She wrote these detailed rules. You know, you can go to Walmart and you can buy a garden hoe, but you can't buy seeds. And so the seed department at Walmart, every store, was roped off, right? And then only 10 people or only 50 people or only 100 people, depending on when and where. Those details... You know, she, she doesn't know any more, any more about that than we do, you know, and, you know, the experts are on TV. You can watch them. So it she was just basically running a, a, a legislature and an executive branch on her own. Now, you know, because we live in the bureaucratic age and because the so-called executive branch has lots of departments and administrative agencies, the health department of Michigan has now reissued most of her rules. And that, too, is no consultation with the legislature. And, you know, the legislature has said that that we would pass, you know, many of her rules. She just should come and talk to us. Well, that's division of power, right? That's separation of powers, one of the key checks and balances in the Constitution. And we abandoned them indefinitely in the face of this emergency. And, and, And she has been rebuked. And we will talk about what that means in the final segment of today's Hillsdale Dialogue. Go nowhere, America. Welcome back. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. I am Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Oren is my guest. The vice presidential debate was this week. The first presidential debate last week. The presidential debate commission has seized power. A coup has occurred in Washington over the other debates. We don't know what's going to happen. So I turned to Dr. Oren and asked for his assessment of this election cycle, which is unlike any I've seen before. It, it pits the countryside versus the capital. Now, the capital in D.C. is in the United States is D.C. with subsidiary branches in New York, Silicon Valley and L.A. But I really do believe it's become the capital versus the countryside. And 
the the Capitol's got allies in the media and the debate commission. What do you think is happening, Dr. Arndt? Well, I hope that those people will back up, right? I hope that they will talk to both sides. Uh, You know, here's what I fear. I can only guess. Uh, I doubt that Biden wants to debate. Um, I don't think he, I think he thinks he's going to win. I I actually think he's wrong about that, but what do I know? Um, And so thinking that, then why do anything dramatic? And now he's got his excuse. And I think Trump should, you know, your idea was a great idea. You have ideas sometimes, Hugh. Occasionally. Uh, occasionally. Ohio produces something good. You know, Trump did a version of that uh, during the Republican debates in 2016, during the primary debates. You remember well. Yep. He just scheduled a day. He said, I'm going to be here. Anybody who wants to come join me, come join me. And, uh, you know, it's hard. You can't get the – it is amazing, isn't it, this mediation. It's just terrible. Did you know that uh, YouTube won't let you put it like that great Barrington video, which you should go watch. I mean, it's these are very serious people making very serious points, right? That's not on YouTube, and if they follow the practices they've been following, they won't let it play. What? And Yeah, G- no, I mean... GBDeclaration.org cannot get on YouTube? I, I don't find it on YouTube, and I don't know whether they've censored it or not, but I know that they have censored many things like that. And, and why? Because we will not permit anything to be played that discourages following the World Health Organization guidelines. And, and see, the, the senior official at the World Health Organization has said in recent days, it's in, it's in a booklet we, we, by uh, Daniel Halper and another of our experts from North Carolina, University of North Carolina, uh, has said, this, oh, this is in Alex Berenson's book, the New York Times reporter who talks about the models and the lockdowns. And apparently authoritative people in the World Health Organization think these lockdowns have been a mistake. Because they're measuring the devastation from them. And, of course, it's not just that the death rates are much lower than they originally predicted. That's important. It's also that they're concentrated, right? You can, the people who are being harmed by them are a discrete population. And so focus one's energy on them and protect them. You know, I, I've told this story before. There's a woman who teaches at Hillsdale College, and she has some vulnerability. I don't know what it is. She's a very beloved woman. And everybody, including me, discourages her from going into the classroom. But this is her life. She wants to go. We finally persuaded her to take two weeks off and teach by Zoom, right? Well, that, that you know, I don't want anybody to die from this at Hillsdale College or anywhere else. And, you know, her, that'd just be just a terrible tragedy if she's stricken by this thing. And so encourage her not to be around places where she can get it. And on the other hand, you know, we have rules and the students have to wear masks in all public places and stuff. Well, what are they doing in the dormitory? I happen to, you know, I have some information about that. Uh, they wear them a lot. A lot? You know, they don't. Oh, good. They don't a lot, too. And what am I going to do about that? You know, I could I could be like the governor, right? I could hire a bunch of them to go enforce on the rest of them. 
right? And and <laughs> yeah, and then Hillsdale College would be a different kind of place if we did that. And and they're they're not stupid. And like uh, the big injunction I get them is that if you're somewhere and you see somebody, anybody with gray hair, me for example, run away. Except I exempt I exempt that in my case. I don't care. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and I, they'll say, why are you not worried about this? And I'll say, I'm too busy to be worried about this. Also, I can read. Even me, an old man, right, unlikely to kill me. And if I get it and die, well, I will get it and die doing the job that I'm supposed to do. And that's so valuable to people, right? This mediated age makes us passive, right? Uh, the, the media is chiefly a passive experience. You know, the great promise of social media that it would not be so passive, but because it involves no direct contact and because it reaches masses, you know, with almost no effort, it also breeds a lot of irresponsibility, too. Whereas talking with each other does not. Does not. And they ought to have talked to both campaigns. And they ought to have either... Talked and mediated a conclusion or declared an impasse. The Presidential Debate Commission should not have grabbed power. It's a banana republic move. Dr. Larry Arn runs no banana republic. He runs a benevolent monarchy. And it's a good one. Hillsdale College, up north, the lantern of reason in America. Go to hillsdale.edu for everything Hillsdale. And I will see you Monday, America, on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.